Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting March 7th, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... Leave it to Beaver. To come back to New York City, we'll talk with the guys who found the first physical evidence that a wild beaver had returned to the city for the first time in 200 years. We'll also talk with journalist and author Alan Wiseman about why we like stories like this one. And we'll hear from Elaine McSherry, winner of the annual Access Science Competition in Dublin, for explaining your research so that it can actually be understood. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Steve Sautner and John Delaney from the Wildlife Conservation Society. I went to the Bronx Zoo last week shortly after the beaver was found to have moved in and spoke to Steve and John on a bridge over the Bronx River. That low rumble you may hear in the background is the traffic on the incredibly nearby Bronx River Parkway. Hi, guys. Tell everybody who you are. I'm Steven Sautner. I'm with the communication staff for the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo. And I'm John Delaney, and also a member of the communication staff at the Bronx Zoo. In fact, in, in this situation, you're the guys who actually made the, the discovery here. Is that right? Well, um, people actually began to uh, spot the beaver um, last year. Uh, we had heard some reports of uh, a large rodent in the river um, with a flat tail uh, that was not a rat. And uh, so we had heard rumblings about it, um, but no one had taken any photos or anything like that. Um, so we were walking through the zoo on our lunch uh, about uh, three weeks ago, and we spotted um, a gnawed tree, a felled tree with a gnawed stump next to it. And I pointed out to, to John, and of course John didn't think I was uh, accurate about that, and so we kind of argued, and then the next day we hiked down a very steep bank and came up to the stump, and sure enough, it was, in fact, gnawed down by a beaver. And so um, the next day, we came back to look some more, and we discovered on the other side of the river the lodge, which, um, as you can, uh, if you look downstream from the bridge where we're standing, uh, it's actually surprisingly close to the parking lot, and it's it's actually interesting that no one else had seen it, because once you know what you're looking at, it's 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 pretty big. It's about five feet across and it stands about four feet off the river and it's a big pile of mud and sticks and it's it can only be caused by one thing and that's a beaver and we're looking at it right now and what are we about uh 75 yards away from it do you think yeah i would say something like that i mean you could see it clearly and, and it's it's maybe 30 feet from the parking lot right yeah if that um you know cars park and you're literally not even a stone's throw from it. Has anybody actually seen the beaver swimming around right here? One of our videographers managed to get some footage of the beaver swimming and we got some photos as well and it was uh, last week that we managed to get these images so it was just a stroke of luck. Now we are standing in the Bronx Zoo right now but we want to make it clear to everybody this is not a zoo animal this is a wild animal that has just fortuitously found its way to the Bronx Zoo, and it's living it's still living as a wild animal here. We do not have beaver in the zoo as part of our zoo animals. Um, we had them at one point many years ago. In fact, I think it was one of the first animals we had on exhibit back you know hundred years ago when the zoo first opened. We haven't had them in many, many years. So yeah, a lot of people had first said, oh, it's an escaped animal, but the fact is we don't have them. So it isn't it's a wild animal that colonized from probably upstream somewhere. How far upstream could it have come down from, do you know? 
Westchester County, probably. Um, apparently, there are some up there. I'm not sure how far the border is. Um, it's several miles. To from here to Westchester, the, the border is probably about six miles. I don't. I don't know. It could be. It could be more than that. It could be. I mean, as as the crow flies, it might be six miles, but as the river flows, it might be many more. Than that. Right. Right. And uh, but also, it's probably coming from northern Westchester, deep in the suburbs up there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they are fairly common, uh, not in urban areas like here, but suburban areas. I mean, they've come back quite a bit, apparently. And the, the beaver has a, a rich history in New York State. It, it's it's still officially the state mammal? Yes, actually, the beaver is the state mammal of New York, and it's also featured on the seal of New York City. Uh, New York City, when it was founded as New Amsterdam back in the 1600s, was actually a beaver pelt trading post. So the beaver has a significant position in the history of New York. So th- this is uh, a, a really fascinating occurrence here. What does it represent in terms of the actual environment here that, that a beaver has uh, has recolonized the city? Um, I think it means a lot to New York City in terms of the revitalization of the Bronx River in, uh, specifically. Um Millions of dollars has been invested in bringing the Bronx River back to ecological health. So to have a beaver actually recolonize former territory, a former territory within the five boroughs of New York City is an amazing occurrence. Well, I just heard a red-tailed hawk call in the background, and, there, and there's a there's a there's a hooded merganser diving by the beaver lodge. Well, he just moved a little bit, but um, I think it gives people uh, a sense of hope for the city that. Uh, that urban wildlife um, can live in New York, uh, be it uh, falcons or striped bass off of Manhattan Island or sturgeon swimming upstream. I, I think it it's, uh, makes people, I don't think people like to think of the city as a sterile place. I think they like to think of it as a place where some wildlife can live alongside with, you know, an urban area. Um, it's something that they find uh, moving, I would say, and uh It's something that makes them feel good. Guys, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. For more info and that video footage, check out the Wildlife Conservation Society website at www.wcs.org. You can also see the photos I took of the lodge and toothmark tree stumps at our blog, blog blog.siam.com. And when you go there, just scroll down to February 28th. Journalist Alan Wiseman is the author of the forthcoming book, The World Without Us, a fascinating thought experiment about what the world would be like should humans suddenly just not be here. We're going to have a long talk with Wiseman on a future podcast about the book, but since his research led him to deeply consider the connection between us and the rest of the life on the planet, I asked him about this particular story, the beaver story, and why it seems to strike such a chord. You know, beavers have been... Beavers have been reintroduced, and we're not killing them for fur anymore. They used to be an incredibly plentiful species, and they were an enormous contractor, shall we say, of the ecosystem. You know, we often think of ourselves as being the the species that has built all this stuff, whereas nature has just been natural. But but if you think about it, a lot of species build things. Uh, Bees and wasps build nests. They build them both in trees and on the ground. Birds build nests, obviously. Beavers, they're real engineers. They build dams. And I have a description in the book of 
all the streams in North America used to look like strings of pearls because there would be beaver dam after beaver dam after beaver dam, and between those beaver dams there would be ponds mm -hmm. where they had dammed rivers. Uh, I was just looking personally at some property in western Massachusetts that had two beaver dams on it, and you, you can see this very vividly. And the economy of, of early New York City, New Amsterdam, was itself built on beavers. Yeah, but you know, it it was an economy economy that had its limitations because it was it, it was not building itself on the fishing that you could get out of those ponds that become automatic trout pools, but on the fur of the beavers. So when you harvest the contractors, after a while, the contracting doesn't take place. Right. So well, now beavers are not being hunted, and they are finding their way into riparian systems. It, anywhere there are trees growing around rivers, as long as we're not killing beavers, beavers are going to appear. And that is what's so marvelous. I mean, anywhere, if we're not going after a species and trying to eliminate it, it will find a niche. That's why we've got peregrine falcons that are nesting on top of the George Washington Bridge. Right. And on the ground, coyotes... There have now been, I think, three of them have been sighted in either Manhattan or in the Bronx, and there are wild turkeys that are coming into the city. I see them in my neighborhood in the Bronx, wild turkeys. Well, it's that's a species that's looking very successful. We're seeing them all over New England now, and they're going to be spreading. I, mean, I used to only see them in the mountains of southern New Mexico or Arizona, and now suddenly... They're just popping forth everywhere. Um, beavers, you know, soon appearing at a river near near where you live. <laughs> can, can you just try to talk about just whatever comes to mind about why we like it so much, though? I, I, nobody is upset that the beaver has returned to New York City. Everybody thinks it's wonderful. Why, what is it in us that reacts in this joyous way? Well, I think as, as as beautiful as some human constructs are, I mean, we have created elegant, graceful bridges, soaring architecture that really does inspire us, you know, wonderful works of art. We all have a sense that we have gone too far. We have become so explosive in the quantity of jumble that we have inflicted upon the planet, that we have cheapened and in many cases just obscured the stuff that we labored so long and so lovingly. I mean, you, you know, just walk through any city and you'll see the old churches, uh, which many of them were built stone by stone over a century ago, and they were built by hand. And now they're hiding behind this modular... Uh, steel and glass architecture that is not really built to last. It's just built to be occupied and is sold and occupied rather quickly. And when we see nature breaking through and shoving aside our constructs or finding a niche in the midst of neighborhoods that we have, I mean, we, we tend to say dehumanized, but it's not really de dehumanizing. It's We've overhumanized them. We've denatured them. Mm -hmm. And when we see nature coming back, the part of us that is a fellow mammal to some of these creatures is thrilled. We relate to those things.
You know, we, that's us too. We are not just technocrats. We are living, breathing, blooded creatures that are thrilled to see other creatures survive and flourish against these huge challenges. For more on Alan Wiseman, including links to his writing, go to www.homelands.org. We'll have that extended talk with Alan about his upcoming book, The World Without Us. In the weeks ahead, the book comes out on July 10th. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, hot peppers may stop fat cells from growing. Story two, a dolphin in Japan has a prosthetic tail. Story three, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is probably going to approve a plan to add baboon genes to some varieties of roses to improve the deep red color. And story four, snails save energy by coasting along on the mucus trails left by other snails. We'll be back with the answer, but first, University College Dublin has a contest for graduate students in which they attempt to explain their research in plain English. This year's competition took place last week, and I called the winner Elaine McSherry just hours after her victory. Hello, Elaine. Nice to talk to you. Hi, Steve. So you're the big winner. Congratulations of Access Science 07. Thank you very much. What was your motivation for entering this competition? Well, Access Science started about 10 years ago in University College Dublin, where I'm currently doing my PhD studies. And um, each year, every third year, a PhD student enters this competition. And the idea is that it's a, a way of portraying your research to people who don't have a scientific background at all. So PhD students would be very used to doing scientific speaking or presentations, but we wouldn't really be used to talking to people who have no scientific background. So it's really a challenge that's set for all third years. And, but your particular motivation for, for trying to better your ability to communicate to the lay audience, what was that? I think, I think it's very important. I mean, not only in Ireland, but in every country that the public knows what's going on, not only in the universities, but in all research. I mean, it's for the public in the end. Um, so they really need to know what's going on so that we can improve science in our country and your country. And um, so we can develop much more education and infrastructure here as well. So really, I mean, I really enjoy talking about what I do because I think it's very interesting. And um, especially we do uh, two types of access science. We do a junior access science, which is for um, 16-year-old school children that come in. So it's, it's really, really good fun. And it's great having them understand a bit more about what I do and about how important it is for people to be aware of breast cancer. And we'll get to your actual research in a moment. Tell everybody who the judges were in this contest. The judges were four Irish celebrities. So we had um, a singer-songwriter from Ireland. We had uh, another singer. And then there was a weather girl who will be on one of our um, national um, television stations. And then we had a sports personality as well. So they were all Irish celebrity judges. And then this made great sense to me that none of those, with the possible exception of the weather person, would uh, probably um, have a strong science background. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't even think she had a, a science degree, but yeah, exactly. Like, no, nobody had a, had a real strong science background. So tell us briefly, I know that your presentation went on for 15 minutes, but just give mm-hmm. us give us the short version of your research in easily understandable terms. Okay, well, my research is concerned with breast cancer. 
And there's there's two main forms of breast cancer. There's lobular breast cancer, which is within the lobules of the breast gland. And these are the the sac-like structures that secrete milk when a woman is pregnant. And then there's ductal breast cancer. And the ducts of the breast are the hollow tubes that transport the milk to the nipple when she's breastfeeding. And most breast cancers are ductal breast cancers, so about 80%. So I study ductal breast cancer. And when ductal breast cancer arises, it arises in the hollow tubes in the duct. So in a normal duct, you'd have a layer of cells lining the duct in a very regular structure, and the center will be hollow. If these cells acquire genetic changes, they can grow out of control, basically, and these can grow and fill the hollow tube. Now, this form of cancer is called ductal carcinoma in situ. So it's breast cancer, but it's still contained within the duct wall. But if these cells in the duct acquire further changes that allow them to break through the duct and to get out into the rest of the breast tissue, these cells are much more likely to be able to get into the bloodstream and to transport to other sites in the body. And this is called metastasis. And it's usually the, the growth of a cancer in a, in a vital, the liver or the lungs, that leads to the death of the patient. So my research looks at genetically profiling cells that are contained within the duct and cells that have managed to break through. So I profile both of these, and I'm really looking at um, are their genes turned on or off when cells become invasive. And what would we be able to do with that information once you have it in hand? Well, breast cancer, the survival rate has increased a lot in the last few years, um, primarily due to research like this. So Herceptin is one of the drugs that's out there, which is basically targeted against one of the proteins on the surface of cancer cells. So really, the more information we know about um, cancer genetics and what genes are turned on or off, uh, the more likely it is that we'll be able to develop new drugs um, that can target these, these cancer cells. So although breast cancer is a cancer that may look the same, there'll be gene- different genetic changes for different women. So, so the more targeted therapies we have, really, the better it's going to be and the better our survival rates will be. Well, I have to say that was pretty clear. I think you explained that quite clearly. I hope so. I tried. <laughs> By the way, tell us, what do you win other than being named the winner of the competition? Um, you, you get a small cash prize, but um, the main thing that you win is the opportunity to enter the InterVarsity competition. So there's I suppose a repeat run of Access Science, only this time um, some of the other major universities within Ireland also enter. So it's a much bigger stage, and it's part of Science Week, our National Science Week in Ireland. So it'll be in a, in a very large venue as well. So just the, the opportunity to do that and to get more of your research out into the public domain. And when does when does that happen? And that is May 3rd, I think. I haven't got too many details on it yet, but that's what I've heard so far. May 3rd. Well, uh, best of luck to you, and we appreciate your time. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you very much, Steve. For more on the Dublin Access Science event, just Google Access Science, one word. But in that word, the second S in Access serves double duty as the first S in Science. So it's A-C-C-E-S-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. And you'll see the link on the very first page of results that come up. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, hot peppers may stop fat cells from growing. Story two, dolphin receives prosthetic tail. Story three, baboon genes to be added to roses. Story four, snails make use of other snails' snail trails. 
Time's up. Story one is true. Capsaicin, the hot stuff in hot peppers, looks like it may destroy immature fat cells before they get a chance to grow around your middle. That's according to research to appear in the March 21st issue of the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. Researchers found that in the lab, at least, capsaicin interfered with young fat cells from maturing into full-fledged fat. The researchers note that the effects were seen at levels just higher than those found in the stomach fluids of people eating a traditional Indian or Thai diet. Story two is true. A dolphin in Japan's Shuramai Aquarium that lost its tail to an infection has been given a prosthetic tail and is jumping for joy. That's according to a March 2nd Reuters story. The tail was made for Fuji the dolphin by a friend of one of the dolphin's human associates who works for the Bridgestone Tire Company. The tail is made from the same material used in Formula One race car tires, reinforced with carbon fiber. We can rebuild you. We have the technology. And story four is true. Snails do apparently go the distance by using the mucus trails left by their slippery friends. Since snails may use a third of their energy producing mucus, the conservation efforts seem well worth it. For more, check out the March second edition of the Daily Science Podcast, Sixty Second Science. All of which means that story three about adding baboon genes to roses is totally bogus. But what is true? Is that the U.S. Department of Agriculture is looking at okaying the commercial growing of rice with human genes inserted? According to the Washington Post, the gene produces a protein in rice seed that could be harvested as an anti-diarrhea medication. Critics fear that the gene could make its way to other crops. Look for some heated debate on this one in the months ahead, as the human race considers human rice. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. Write to us at podcast at siam dot com. Check out news articles at the website www dot siam dot com, and don't forget the daily Siam podcast, sixty second science, at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Mm-hmm.